zone. You can't go. All the plants are gonna die. I'm gonna take a bath. Bad dates. I'll alert the media. Boys, keep off the moors. It's evil. Don't touch it. The name's Pliskin. No more hangers. Welcome to Vintage Video, where we're rewatching the 80s so you don't have to. We'll be reviewing every major film release of the 1980s in chronological order, overanalyzing what you've seen and spoiling what you haven't. I'm Patrick O'Reilly. I'm Jesse Bayless. I'm Richard Wells. And I'm Mike Sterling. And today, we're discussing Heavy Metal, released August 7th, 1981. It was written by Daniel Goldberg, Len Bloom, Dan O'Bannon, Richard Corbin, Bernie Wrightson, Angus McKee, Jean Mobius Girard, Directed by Gerald Potterton, John Bruno, John Hallis, Julian Harris, Jimmy T. Murakami, Barry Nelson, Paul Sabella, Jack Stokes, Pino Van Lamsweird, and Harold Whitaker, and released by Columbia Pictures. That might be our most directors for a single film so far. That's an anthology. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Did you want to introduce yourself a little bit, Mike, and just tell us who you are and your, your relationship with this film? Uh, sure. I am the owner of the local comic book store here in, in town, uh, Sterling Silver Comics. And I've been listening to the podcast for several months now. Uh, and over the course of listening to it, you guys have mentioned being in the area, which I commented on <laughs> online. And Patrick mentioned that he'd actually been to the store, <laughs> which kind of surprised me. I got to tell him that, you know, sometimes I'd be listening to podcasts in the shop while it was slow. And if somebody walked in, I would turn off the podcast so that it wouldn't be distracting to the customer. So I told him it was theoretically possible he'd come in while I was listening to vintage video and turned off the podcast so I wouldn't bother him. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, turn I, that off. <laughs> I often ask Patrick to turn it off so it doesn't bother me. <laughs> All right, well, let's start digging into the movie then. In 1954, the Comics Code Authority was established as a self-regulating censorship board in part to avoid the necessity of a government agency being formed. The CCA was basically the MPAA for comic books. I'm sure you know all of this. Oh, I'm sure do. Uh, Though as of 2011, the last few major publishers have severed their ties with the comics code. So it is now defunct. In December of 1974, Jean Mobius Girard published the first issue of anthology comic Metal Herlan, or Howling Metal, in his home country of France, beyond the reach of the CCA's influence. And as a result, these comics could be much more risque with their content in regard to sex and violence than American publications. So were all American comics just really tame at that point? They found ways to get around it. I mean, once you got into the 70s, the Comics Code Authority was becoming a little less strict over some of the content that would appear in comics. Mm -hmm. So you had sort of a renaissance in horror comics during the 70s. And some of the content was a little edgier than you would see in your normal, you know, like Richie Rich or something. I wonder if that corresponded with horror movies being more violent starting in the 70s. The 70s was kind of a big period for horror anyway. So comics were just reflecting the time so i imagine that's why the comics code authority let a lot of this stuff slip through that wasn't going through before and they didn't want to lose their grip on like the authority that they had too yeah uh national lampoon contributor tony hendra was a fan of these uncensored european comics and lured various publishers to submit material to the lampoon offices 
Editor Sean Kelly was particularly intrigued by Matal Herlan and presented an issue to Lampoon President Leonard Mogul just as he was leaving the country to establish the offices of a French edition of the Lampoon. By the time Mogul returned, he'd secured the rights to publish an English translation of Matal Herlan to be titled Heavy Metal beginning in 1977. Somehow, they also scored a deal with Universal Pictures to distribute a film adapted from the stories of the magazine, but the project was put in turnaround and subsequently passed off to 20th Century Fox under the leadership of Alan Ladd Jr. While Hollywood juggled the project, Matal Herlan creator Mobius had offered rights to various characters to French production companies, and stories in the planned script had to be replaced or drastically rewritten. Because he sold them twice? Well, he sold them to people in France because he was like, they're never going to make those movies that they talked about. Like, he thought they were just yeah, stringing him along. Wouldn't he not be allowed to do that unless they also... Well, I suppose... He owned the rights of the characters. Well, but if he had optioned international rights to this stuff, he wouldn't be allowed to do that. I don't know if you don't have a studio attached. I don't know who the option is held oh, I by. I thought you that said point. that Fox was attached. Fox or... was attached, but they were just hanging out with it, not doing anything with mm. it for a long time. So maybe there was an option that would have prevented this, but either way, they had to keep rewriting the story so that they didn't infringe on what he'd already sold in France. Mm hmm. As we've discussed on the show before, Ladd Jr. departed from Fox in 79 to form the Ladd Company, which so far this year has distributed Outland for us, and Fox dumped heavy metal in Ladd's wake. National Lampoon decided to touch base with their closest connection to the film industry, namely director Ivan Reitman, who was busy on the set of Stripes. Reitman would enlist several SCTV regulars as a voice cast, as well as collaborating screenwriters from his films Meatballs and Stripes, to adapt more heavy metal stories to the script, and even compose a few from scratch, along with a wraparound story to tie them all together. In order to benefit from Canadian tax shelter legislation, they would have to spend three quarters of the film's eventual $9 million budget in the country. As a result, they had to recruit almost every animator at Canada's disposal. Four out of five animators in the country were all working on this film at one point. That, that makes sense. <laughs> Late in the production, the release date was bumped up from October-November to August, and the consequent crunch led to several visible animation errors and a few unplanned shortcuts that we'll discuss later. That's giving me anxiety just thinking about I, yeah. crunching the schedule. Oh, you by lost that much. three months. I'm sorry. You don't just do that to an animated feature film. No. <laughs> I think some of the decisions they made to finish the film made for some interesting visual effects, sure. which I'm sure we'll get to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, sometimes the, those limitations actually help things a little bit, but yeah, I'm sure at the time they were heart attack. freaking out. <laughs> Well, art from adversity, right? Right. There you go. Columbia acquired the finished film for $8 million and spent an additional six advertising it. Six million, not six dollars. <laughs> <laughs> they just bought one Facebook ad. Uh, with the help of musical groups like Black Sabbath, Blue Oyster Cult, Cheap Trick, Devo, and Journey, the loaded soundtrack helped drive the box office, nearly paying for itself in a single week's take. But predictably, its home video release was near impossible to coordinate. It took 15 years to hit stores, and to coincide, Columbia put a remastered version of the film back in theaters for a limited release. How did they get all these people to agree to do this film? A lot of them are Canadian bands. Are they? Which helped. I um, guess that helps. I mean, like, it's a cool concept, but, like, as a band, I mean, maybe when one goes, they all fall like dominoes. They're like, oh, they're doing it? I guess I'll do it. But it's just such a huge list of for such a kind of well slapdash film like it wasn't like it wasn't a huge thing before you have to remember though that the the comics were very popular 
um, both the the English translation and the original French versions, and you show one of these guys a comic book where it's like you know naked ladies and robots exploding, and of course they're going to be like, yeah, you can put put us in that movie if it's going to look like this in the movie. And yeah, it just doesn't feel that official. Like yeah. you know, like it's it feels kind of thrown together. It's like oh yeah, my my buddies uh my buddies will come do some voices, and uh, yeah, I guess I'll direct some stuff. But it's also like, <laughs> like the National Lampoon was pretty popular at the time too, and so the people who were hip. And I think a lot of the people in these bands were were hip. They knew what was what was yeah. cool and what people were following. Plus, it was a paycheck. That's true. Yeah, plus, the, it, you know, nine million dollars isn't isn't nothing. That's yeah. a lot of money to spend on an animated film. Yeah, yeah, they were getting money for their songs being used, so they that probably helped I, uh, grease the wheels I, I, a little. Based on based on everything I've heard, most of the budget sounds like it went to the music. Yeah, it probably did. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. It was followed by a sequel in 2000 called Heavy Metal 2000, and in the spirit of sequels that end with the number 2000, <laughs> it is widely despised. It is not a good film. No. no. <laughs> At the time, Kevin Eastman, half of the Ninja Turtle creator duo Eastman and Laird, had taken over at Heavy Metal magazine, which by then had outlived Matal Herlan, and he put together plans for a second film with updated animation. The biggest fault of the film is that it's all one long story, with a fairly uninteresting plot, but the animation isn't the worst. I would rank it halfway between Disney theatrical and Disney direct to video. <laughs> so it's like kind of like Fox animated movies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, it reminds <laughs> me a lot of um, of what's the space one? Titan AE. Titan AE oh, in terms man. of the style. Well, that's, it's, that's, that's Don Bluth though. Yeah. yeah. How dare you? <laughs> no, it doesn't. That's what I'm saying. The animation is not terrible, but. It's also not super interesting, and it's the story is entirely really unmemorable. Yeah, I, I watched that, and I can't tell you a single thing about I it. I watched it like yesterday, and I don't oh, remember no. the story. <laughs> it also features the voices of Michael Ironside, Billy Idol, and in the lead, Eastman's wife at the time, Julie Strain, which I think is also another mistake. Well, you know, if it works for Spielberg, you know, right? Exactly. <laughs> The film was also adapted into a third-person shooter computer game called Heavy Metal Fact Two. In 2008, David Fincher was spearheading another heavy metal revival with a deal from Paramount. Many big-name directors, fans of the magazine, were quickly attached as directors for individual segments, including Eastman again, Fincher, Tim Miller, Guillermo del Toro, Zack Snyder, Gore Verbinski, and James Cameron. That's a really good lineup it's of directors. It's amazing, and it's I really sad that. that that didn't happen, but bizarrely, <laughs> Paramount dropped the deal. And the budget shrunk when it briefly moved back to Columbia, who had released the first film, before it was abandoned again. So I, I get the impression that even though they had all these people, they didn't have their ducks in a row. Yeah. And the studio got to the point where they're like, this isn't going to happen. Or these names are so loosely connected to being attached that they didn't believe it. Well, they're also very busy people. To, right. To say yeah. like to hey, coordinate them all. You all need to stop what you're doing right now and and work on the same movie. thing at the same yeah, time. But you don't have to. It's an anthology piece. Like it's just like okay. Just all put right, it together. I got over a few I got years. this one yeah. guy's piece done. I got this one guy's piece done, and we you know make some stuff to connect it. You don't. I think have that makes studios it. uncomfortable. They like to have it all in one account. Yeah. An anthology is really the way to go with a heavy metal adaptation. Yeah. Do, doing the one story, like you said, was a bad idea. For it made that, no sense for heavy metal two thousand, but. And, and the the best part of this movie, and obviously we're going to get into it, but is that you have such different stories that all 
are being connected in this. I mean, it's a loose connection, but <laughs> very loose. Um, <laughs> but still, the the fact, like, what I enjoy about it is seeing all the different versions of this universe. Oh, absolutely. Three years after the last revival was abandoned, in 2011, Robert Rodriguez acquired the rights and announced a new film, but nothing ever came of that. The most recent heavy metal resurrection came in the form of a television series, which I think would be great, but because Rodriguez has held on to the official rights, the latest reboot was more of a loose reimagining on Netflix entitled Love, Death, and Robots, which just released its third season a couple weeks back. But that started as a television adaptation of heavy metal. And it, can I say at what how successful that was because not only did I, I I didn't watch all the seasons yet but not only did I really enjoy watching those when I watched this movie which I hadn't seen before I'm like man this reminds me of Love, Death, and Robots and I'm like I bet it was inspired by this but it literally it literally was yeah well and there's other things too like um, the Animatrix I feel like owes a lot to this probably um, which I love all of those too yeah the Animatrix is wonderful The film was also parodied on South Park in season 12, episode 3, which is called Major Boobage, uh, (laughs) where the kids get high on cat piss or something and then hallucinate that they're in a very uh, heavy metal-esque universe. Um, I wanted to watch it today. I didn't get around to it, so I apologize if that's not exact, but I'm pretty sure it was cat piss. (laughs) We start in space, and an Orson Welles-esque voice warns us of an impending doom from the skies. A glowing green orb floats past camera and the words heavy metal drift into frame as a CG model. One thing I wanted to point out about the opening yeah. is that the heavy metal logo moving in with that screeching, uh, grinding metal sound. <laughs> is wonderful. I love that. It yeah. makes it sound so unsettling and ominous. But then they tried to gild the lily a little bit by throwing in a crash of thunder and yeah. evil laughter. And it's like, you, you, <laughs> it's you're fine with just the grinding sounds. Yeah. <laughs> you, did, you didn't need all this extra flash on it. And there's a big, like a flash across the front of it and it suddenly becomes metallic as it's settling in space. Yeah, even, even that's fine. But I don't know, the, the, the thunder and the <laughs> laughter were just like a little bit too much. <laughs> Though they aren't labeled on screen until the final credits, the first segment here is called Soft Landing and is probably the shortest of the group. Next, a space shuttle rockets into frame and the shuttle bay doors open to drop a 1960 Corvette convertible into space with an astronaut behind the wheel. The imagery is likely most familiar to modern audiences because of a well-known SpaceX publicity stunt, wherein a spaceship released a Tesla into orbit, I think, around Mars? Well, that was the target, but I don't think it made it. It I think it was just in orbit. It didn't make it to Mars. Um, But it also had a spacesuit in the driver's seat, hopefully an empty one, though. Yeah, (laughs) this this is the only part, because I hadn't seen this movie before. This is the only part I had seen because I specifically looked it up on YouTube to watch it when I'm like, what is everyone talking about? Yeah, I still like to think that that was the most public ever disposal of a murder victim. Yeah. (laughs) He was just like... Look it. What are you going to do? Go find it? It's gone. Where's your evidence? <laughs> Nobody, no crime. In the opening credits, I spotted the names of Michael Gross and Joe Medjuk, who are regular collaborators of Reitman's. As a longtime Ghostbusters fan, I have met Reitman and Medjuk at various Ghostbusters screenings in the Hollywood area. As the car descends toward a papier-mâché model of planet Earth, I kept waiting for a parachute to open. <laughs> the front of the car glows red hot as it tears through the atmosphere, a cloud layer, 
and eventually touches down in what looks like Monument Valley, Utah. The car slams down on its tires before the driver pulls the chute. <laughs> what was the point of that? It wasn't even moving. <laughs> Look cool. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Lots of roto here, using photography of an actual car from all the necessary angles and then animating a background to imply the car's motion. There's a very MTV feel to this first segment, and it's likely not a coincidence since the cable channel began broadcasting the same month as this film's release. It also really feels uh, not not just MTV-like, but specifically like liquid television. Like when they sure. started doing those like evening animated uh, programs, yeah. it, this is very much in line with that. And an image of an astronaut became the de facto mascot of the channel yeah like well into the 90s i feel like this wasn't even just straight roto on a lot of this stuff i think it was almost like uh an illustration uh like uh photocopied uh oh yeah like, yeah, yeah like they just upped to the high contrast and then like you know maybe rotoed out the the edge of the car but like even the inside is like shaded as if it were like a high contrast uh photocopy yeah that makes sense yeah that's pretty much what it was it was just photos of the car and animated into this the sequence yeah and or it's... or is it possible that they recorded like they just did film instead of photos and then just cut out every frame i don't know i think if i remember correctly from the little special feature i watched oh, on sure. the film on i i think it's just photographs. They okay. just took photos of the camera. I think that's or, less uh, cheating. Photos of the car, <laughs> excuse me. Sure, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, it, it looks great. Yeah, I, absolutely. I think it, it really gets you into the movie with the combination of the music and, and the motion of the car and everything else. It really grabs your attention. Yeah. Uh, the film's astronaut drives along the road through a cornfield up to an old house. The mailbox at the end of the driveway says Grimaldi which is the last name shared by multiple sound recordists in the opening credits. As the astronaut steps out of the car, we transition fairly seamlessly into the second segment, which is also just called Grimaldi, and it will serve as the wraparound segment that holds the rest of the film together. The astronaut drops his helmet in the driver's seat and carries a space container from the trunk up the steps to his front door. His daughter, I assume it's his daughter, they don't mention their relationship to each other, races down a spiral staircase to ask what kind of a gift he has brought her. He carries the small case into his dining room and taps a button on the dome on top. Green light pours out and the orb within begins to levitate. Suddenly, Spaceman Grimaldi is screaming in pain and then rapidly decomposing to dust on the floor. The ball rolls across the room toward Grimaldi's daughter, who is trapped in a nightmare scream. Her face is contorted in horror, but she can barely squeak out a sound as the ball introduces itself. I am the sum of all evil. Look carefully. My power infests all times, all galaxies, all dimensions. We jump to the next story, Harry Canyon. On a distant planet in the distant future, a troop of treasure hunters scan the surface of a barren world with modified metal detectors. When the first treasure hunter gets a reading, he waves over three men with blaster devices that break open the surface of the ground and then they wave over a tractor to continue digging. It's not just a tractor. It's like a triple excavator. It's got yeah, yeah it's yeah. got like three scoops that, that that open and close like mouths that you know work independently of each other. Yeah, it's it awesome. Doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't seem super efficient for this kind no, of no, digging. No, no, it's not it's not a good thing. <laughs> you it's don't bring just... this in for detail work. No. <laughs> no. The excavator uncovers a glowing green ball in the dirt, and when the first of the treasure hunters approaches it to pick it up, he melts away the same as Grimaldi did. We cut to future New York, July 3rd, 2031 to be exact. And in the establishing shot, we see the Twin Towers apparently due for reconstruction sometime in the next nine years. 
All of the major landmarks of the New York City area seem to be dilapidated. There's a for sale sign in the window of the ground floor of the Empire State Building. Rockefeller Center has been converted into a row of strip clubs. Speaking of Tesla, I'm pretty sure I spotted at least one Cybertruck in this future traffic. <laughs> Our final New York City landmark is Lincoln Center, which seems to have been converted into a rock and roll venue. Do you guys recall the next time Ivan Reitman will use the Lincoln Center as a shooting location? The next time? Mm -hmm. That's not fair. Ghostbusters? There you go. <laughs> Bye, well, I'll see you Thursday. I'm sorry I didn't get to meet you, sir, and I'm glad you're feeling much better. You're still very pale, though. A little sun. Well, what does he do? Well, he's a scientist. And when did we last see the Lincoln Center on the podcast? Hmm. These will be trickier for you, Mike. Yeah, don't, don't, don't <laughs> ask me. <laughs> did we see inside or outside? Outside. Hmm. A person wow. was preparing to leave moving across the country to get away from trauma of his past, but he was a Permanent musician. Permanent vacation? Five easy pieces? The Changeling. Because oh. <laughs> I was trying the music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, the, all the music is on the West Coast in, uh, in Five Easy Pieces. Yeah, we've possibly seen it since then, but the last I remember was the start of The Changeling when George C. Scott is moving across the country after the death of his wife and child. I mm. forgot he was a composer in that. Yeah. I completely yeah. forgot about that. Because he's aspect. playing music in the... Yeah. In the house, in the new house. They hate this. <laughs> <laughs> I like to torture them. <laughs> the camera comes to rest on a futuristic taxi waiting on a corner. We hear a noir detective style voiceover from our new protagonist and lazy vagina pun cab driver, Harry Canyon. <laughs> I think it's a <laughs> vagina pun. Well, we, it is heavy metal. You, yeah. you can't put it past him. He opens a newspaper to read about a professor who discovered an ancient relic called the Lochnar, which is scheduled for presentation at the Met. A street tough who looks like Master Shredder's about to turn him into a human warthog knocks on the taxi and asks for a ride. We're two, pal. The UN building. While the cab is still in motion, the passenger puts a gun to Harry's head and asks for his money. Using his foot, Harry flips open a compartment beside the gas pedal and steps on a button which activates a beam which then fills the back seat completely and evaporates the mugger. It's a similar death to what we've seen people exposed to the Lochnar directly, but apparently it's a different thing because it's yellow, it's not green. I do like that there's a cover on the button though. Yeah, so, so he doesn't accidentally doesn't just vaporize all of his customers. <laughs> No tip. <laughs> Harry tucks the man's gun into his glove compartment. As he drives past the Metropolitan Museum, we see the professor who discovered the Lochnar crashing through the glass door out onto the steps. It appears he's been shot, and the men who did it are now pursuing the professor's daughter. She runs down the steps nearly into the path of Harry's taxi and hops in for a ride. He can tell the woman is trouble, and he usually doesn't take part in these activities, but against his better judgment, he lets her in because he pushes a little button on the dash yeah. that unlocks her door. Very fifth element. Yeah, like. a lot of this one. The henchman who killed her father fires shots at Harry's taxi as he continues down the street. As they leave, the girl explains that those men are after the Lochnar, and only she knows where it is now that her father is dead. Harry pulls over outside the police department and turns to discover that his passenger is apparently narcoleptic and has passed out already. He throws her over his shoulder and carries her into the precinct. At the door, Harry scans his palm on a video screen and a cop inside presses a few buttons to let him in. A group of prostitutes near the entrance recognize Harry and offer assorted greetings. A stringy alien character that sounds suspiciously like John Candy pinching his nose is escorted to a jail cell. <laughs> I told you, I'm an American citizen. I, I just lost my papers or something. Goddamn illegal aliens. Harry approaches a desk sergeant that sounds suspiciously like John Candy not pinching his nose. 
The cop tells Harry that an investigation will cost him $1,000 a day, plus another grand if they catch the murderer. For some reason, Harry takes the girl back with him when he leaves. He carries her practically dead-looking body all the way to his apartment and lays her across his couch where she immediately wakes up. She's like, oh, I'm comfortable. Time to wake up. She thanks Harry for saving her life, and he asks what these henchmen are after. The Lochnar, an ancient relic that my father found in the desert. It's worth a fortune, especially to the Venusians. They think it, it has spiritual powers. Later that night, Harry tucks himself into bed, and she asks if she can join him. Is it, oh, like, is it, they think it has spiritual powers. Does it? Yeah. <laughs> no, it doesn't. Like... It's, just, it's just like those orbs that you buy for your cab back seat. Later that night, Harry tucks himself into bed, and she asks if she can join him. She strips completely nude, and they are immediately having sex. When Harry awakens in the morning, the girl is gone, and two cops are standing over his bed, asking where she went. He pretends not to know who they're talking about, and they leave. When he climbs into his cab out front, he quickly finds himself at knife point. He prepares to tap the radiation button again, but is warned against it by a melty-faced kingpin-type Venusian character named Rudnick, who seems to be in charge of the bad guys. Rudnick tries to convince Harry that he wants to purchase the Lochnar from the girl fair and square, even though yesterday they were shooting at her as she was running down the street. He urges Harry to convince her to cooperate before putting out his cigar on the cab's leather interior. I'm assuming it's leather. I have no idea. Later, we see Harry pulled over to buy a hot dog off a robot street vendor played by Robbie the Robot from the Forbidden Planet film. <laughs> There's one thing about, I don't know what point of the Harry Canyon story this pops up, but yeah. there is a shot of a sort of a movie theater yes. with, the, with the Jaws 7. Right. Uh, it's right behind the taxi as he's buying the hot dog here. Okay. This doesn't really have much to do with the film, but I'm kind of wondering when they started doing that sort of gag in, in movies. I was trying to think, of, was there earlier versions of this because it had to be in the era of the of the number to sequels yeah. and like star wars and jaws and all that to, to show that we're in the future because of police academy 18 is on right you know, is showing yeah. and obviously back to the future too has the jaws 19 that's right billboard um but but it's interesting to have like jaws 7 because like when was Jaws two? Yeah, this this it is couldn't have been that long after. I think this, this is after Jaws two, right? Right, right. But it's definitely before Jaws four. I think Jaws three D was eighty three. So there mm. were only two movies. So to yeah. pretend like this franchise is still going on, it's like they've made two so far. No, Calm down. It's just ahead of its time. Yeah, it's, it, it knew. It knew. Yeah, I mean they did eventually make four. So <laughs> <laughs> a few too many, if you ask Michael Caine. Can you guys name the only actor who's in both this and Back to the Future 2? He's in both of the movies with Jaws sequel jokes. You got to look at your list, Richard. There's <laughs> yeah. only so many people in this yeah, movie. Yeah, I was like, I was like, is it Fleischer? No. It's not Levy, is it? No. No. Shoot. But it's another of the SCTV folks. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. No? Joe Flaherty. Flaherty. Oh, <laughs> damn it. <laughs> you knew that. I did know that. <laughs> Rudnick's henchmen follow Harry's cab through traffic. A drone floats up beside his driver's side window to deliver a message from the girl. Meet female acquaintance at Statue of Liberty, 4 o'clock. Stop. End message. I love that they're so reticent to name this character. <laughs> Even the robot is just like, female acquaintance. It's like, she didn't say her name? How, how can you even legally send a message through a robot that way? I mean, maybe he, at this point, does he even know what her name is? No, he definitely doesn't, but I would assume <laughs> she would include it in her message somehow. Yeah, nobody knows her name, I don't think. Yeah, no, yeah. the credit is just girl, I think. <laughs> 
Harry looks at the clock and sees he has 17 minutes to get there and engages the jet drive switch from his dashboard. When the henchmen follow him, Harry activates guns installed behind his taillights and shoots one of the men out of the sky. When Harry makes a quick right turn into a tunnel, the second henchman simply crashes into the wall above the tunnel without much work on Harry's part. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, you just new to town? You didn't know it was around this corner? You're going pretty fast. We cut to the Statue of Liberty's torch as Harry reaches the top and finds the girl with the Lochnar in its carrying case. She tells Harry that she's had a change of heart and is prepared to sell to Rudnick. Apparently, he's offering 300,000 chrono dollars, which are different than regular dollars. You can use them to buy cronuts. We have to convert to chrono dollars any day now. <laughs> but she's too scared to deliver it alone and asks Harry to make the drop for half the score. I guess well, he offers yeah. to do it for half of the money, which seemed like a lot. Yeah, that's a, that's a lot. But she doesn't care because in her mind, it's not actually going to matter. Right. But then when you see what happens, he didn't do $150,000 worth of work or chrono, chrono dollars, maybe. <laughs> but like, but she's going into this knowing, I'm just sure, whatever, 50%. Yeah. But if, if I were going to cut him in on this, I would make him do the hard part of this job, not the easy part of this job. Or, or if I was going to make him not suspicious, I would have negotiated. Tried to, yeah. Yeah, tried to like, bring yeah. him down yeah. well. He's like, yeah. no, you can have it all. I don't care. Yeah, Just exactly. do this thing for me. <laughs> I just Wink. want one dollar. <laughs> one chrono dollar, please. <laughs> we cut to the handoff that night on a construction zone on a bridge. Is this the Brooklyn Bridge or the George Washington Bridge? I don't know. I don't know New York very well. Was that I, the Lincoln Tunnel that he went into? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I would know the Brooklyn Bridge out of a lineup. But I don't remember what bridge they were on at this point. You just point. look for all the werewolves on the top of it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's a reference to, uh, what was it? Wolfen. 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 <laughs> Harry waits in his cab with the handgun from the mugger and promises to keep the girl covered as she delivers the Lochnar. If you notice, when he pulls the gun back out of his glove compartment, that grenade that was in there before when he put the gun in is gone. So, <laughs> so he's used it. There's there's some kind of missing time in the story where he threw a grenade at somebody. <laughs> That's funny. I did not catch that. I thought the whole point of hiring him was to make him do the handoff, not just to offer coverage from a distance. How is this any less scary than what she was planning on doing before? The man drops a similar carrying case with a label of 300000 on the face of it. The girl collects her money and returns to Harry's cab. I just say I'm impressed by the integrity of these mobsters. Like, yeah, I also like, like that they have. This must be like blockchain, that the that you can put a briefcase down and it'll just have a number on it, and you understand that that much is in there yep. for sure. So heavy metal predicted cryptocurrency. I guess that's what these chrono currency they call yeah, it. That's that's what it is. There you go. Rudnick's curiosity gets the better of him, and he immediately opens the case and melts away with the Lochnar in his hands. It almost looks like they reused the dissolving animation from the first death of this segment, but I can't really tell. On the way back to the city, Harry suggests planning a trip with their newfound winnings, but the girl announces that she has decided to keep all the money for herself. She puts a gun to Harry's head, and he taps the special trigger to dissolve her. Of course, unlike the street tough earlier, the girl's clothes disappear first, <laughs> and then the rest of her naked body. In voiceover, Harry confirms that the money was not destroyed in the backseat, which worried me at first. And we cut back to the orb on the bridge as it glows brighter and brighter and we fade back to the Grimaldi house. By the way, do you guys recall the last time we had a Grimaldi on the podcast? It was an actor's last name. Oh. Dan Grimaldi. He was the lead character of Don't Go in the House. Grimaldi's daughter, the character in this film, not the actor from Don't Go in the House, <laughs> is still terrified by the orb as it launches into a second story of its evils entitled Simply Den. 
as scared as she is of these stories, I feel like I would be even less excited to hear the story of the second film. <laughs> this, this, a lot of this reminds me of the ghost of robotic Christmas future. Oh, from Aqua Teen? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just like, it's like, I have another long story. You might want to get a snack. <laughs> <laughs> and I love the animation on the girl's face, too. Yeah. It's just all these permutations of horror crossing her face. But she's barely making a sound. She's just kind of wiggling away from it. Yeah, it's it's very evocative, yeah. I think. In our next tale, we meet a child voiced by John Candy who discovers the Loch Nahr embedded in the dirt outside his home. Apparently, he's able to handle it safely and carries what he thinks is a green meteorite inside. I think the difference, I, I've been, I was trying to figure out what the yeah. difference was. When the Loch Nahr is glowing, you don't touch it. Because okay. I'll dissolve you. When it's not glowing, it's safe it's to safe. handle. I, okay. That's what it looks like. All right. That's a good rule. <laughs> don't touch a glowing Loch Nahr, folks. <laughs> if you learn anything from this podcast, please do not touch a glowing Loch Nahr. The child, Dan, claims that he read in Faraday's Life of the Planets that small meteorites like this don't usually survive to the Earth's surface. Of course, he has no idea how big this rock started, so it may well have burned off on the way down. Also, presumably Dan is referring to scientist Michael Faraday, but I could find no such book as Life of the Planets. Every search I tried led back to the script for this movie. So. <laughs> Sometime later, Dan has forgotten about the orb, discarding it in his rock collection, and is experimenting with capturing electricity from lightning strikes when the orb is suddenly ignited in his bedroom. Dan is standing between his equipment and the glowing ball when he is suddenly blasted into outer space. We watch him thrown from planetary orbit to planetary orbit completely nude. His body transforms from that of a child to a full-grown muscle-bound man. He comes to rest on a large statue overlooking a pit of flames. He notices first that he has no hair, and then that he has a giant penis, I think, <laughs> or just the muscles. I can't tell. He just looks down and says something's big. And third, that he has no pants on. So he snatches down a leather flag to fashion into a loincloth. There was no way I was going to walk around this place with my dork hanging out. Yeah, I definitely wouldn't want to be walking around this planet completely nude. With Nobody my does dork that. hanging yeah. out. It, it should be noted that in the original comics, right. there is no such compunction. Yeah. Uh, dorks was, are hanging out all over the place. This was just for the Americans <laughs> who don't like seeing dorks hanging out. It's just so uh, they don't get the X rating. With, right. I think that's what was oh, happening. Oh, probably, here. yeah. yeah. <laughs> was it like Dr. Manhattan? <laughs> yeah, for some reason that was cool. But boobs are totally acceptable. Yeah, right. Yeah. It was a different time. It's the same time. <laughs> <laughs> Below him, he notices a ritualistic sacrifice taking place. He compares it to something out of the Ten Commandments, but it looks more like Temple of Doom to me, but that wouldn't hit theaters for a few more years. A bunch of men in robes chant Ulutek during the ceremony, Ulutek being an approximate pronunciation of Cthulhu backwards. Ulutek. Ulutek. The topless priestess, summoning Ulutek, orders a topless blonde woman to be sacrificed. But let's cover up that penis, shall we? <laughs> the men in robes toss her into what I thought was a pool of lava, but it splashes like water. And Dan, who shall henceforth be known as Den, or sometimes Living Room, dives into the water <laughs> and drags the girl's body through an underwater tunnel to freedom. Luckily, she survives this dangerous rescue. As they speak to each other, they learn that they both come from Earth. The woman introduces herself as Catherine Wells from the British colony of Gibraltar. Weirdly, in all the tight shots, she's wearing a small string bikini, but whenever the camera goes wide, she is completely naked again. And I guess in the comics, she's like an 80-year-old woman. 
Yeah, who's been transformed into this right. young body. And yeah. so, and he's an 18-year-old boy who is transformed into this body. So it's a love story with an 18-year-old and an 81-year-old. It's basically Harold and Mott. Yeah. Uh, the thing about Den's name, he, he never actually tells anybody his name is right. Den. In yeah. This. Well, just, he says Den at the very end of the story. Yes, but, yeah. uh, but before, before that, people are calling him Den. That's like, true. Like, <laughs> they he, just knew it. Yeah, and... Uh, I don't know if you want me to get into the comic at all at this point. Oh, sure. I, I know it's it's someone's initials, right? Yeah, it, it's the kid's initials. It's uh, I wrote it down. It's David Ellis Norman. Oh, okay. That was his name. And so he just used the initials yeah. to be the new name. Yeah, in the comic, he loses his memory, but he remembers those those initials, so he just starts calling himself Dan. Oh, okay. But in this, they changed his Earth name to Dan so that it's just a slight variation instead. Den and Catherine are quickly making love on the ground until they're interrupted by a tribe of creepy-looking dog and ape people. They're taken prisoner and marched together to a castle where they're then split up. Den is led to the throne room of Ard. Den demands the release of Catherine, and Ard responds by ordering his guards to castrate the prisoner. Den capably defeats the various monster guards and then turns one of their guns on Ard. Give me the girl or die. Well, if I have a choice... I'll take death. So be it. Den shoots Ard full of holes, which slowly close themselves up. Evidently, Ard is immortal. And Michael Ironside voices a similarly invulnerable villain in the second film. And every time someone buries an axe in his face, it just closes up after they pull it out. When you kill someone, darling, make sure he's dead. What the hell? Ard gestures to Catherine's body encased in glass. He demands that Den work together with his bravest warrior, Norrell, to steal the Loch Nahr from the Queen's castle and bring it here in exchange for the girl. And if I refuse? If you refuse, you die. She dies. Everybody dies. Sounded reasonable to me. <laughs> I just like how Ard does not <laughs> care about anything. He's just like, whatever, I'll just kill everybody. Another note I can throw in here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the actual term Loch Nahr comes from the Den comics. Oh, does it? Yes, it's uh, some kind of magical item that's present in the Den stories. I do wonder if it's not an abbreviation of a pair of words. Like, it feels like the first three letters of two words. Right, but I, I'm not sure. I've never honest. heard any uh, explanation of the actual origin of, of that combination. Den and Norrell venture to the Queen's castle and break in from tunnels under the ground. They also bring a lot of other fighters with them. As they pass under the palace moat, they are attacked by an enormous monster with 16-inch teeth and then rush upstairs into the castle. Maybe it's the lighting, but Den seems to be changing colors from blue to red back and forth from scene to scene. This is something I wanted to point out about the, the animated version of Den. Oh, okay. The original comics are very beautifully painted by Corbin. It's very richly colored, very three-dimensional looking, almost impossible to animate to look like that. Okay. Which would explain some of the weird, I think, color choices made in this segment to sort of approximate, you know, the look. It, it never really succeeds. I know uh, Corbin was happy, though, with this segment. That, you know, that he was yeah. actually pleased with how it ended up. Yeah, I mean, it, it looks really good. Yeah. Uh, some of the background material actually looks like some of the painted work from the original comic now i know some of the original artists did come back and do background work i don't know if corbin was one of them but i know s some of the segments of this film the backgrounds were done by the original artists yeah so. uh, uh mckee i think oh okay uh, for, for the i think the segment coming up oh, okay soon. when he finds it den recognizes the lochnar as the stone he found in his yard 
He moves through a dark room to steal it, and when the lights come on, he realizes that he's holding not the Lochnar, but the Queen's breasts. She orders her guards to kill him, but then changes her mind at the last minute because she wants to take him to bed, and her henchmen are pretty bummed about it. Come with me. She's not again. This always happens. Look, she's the queen. She can do whatever she wants. Yeah, sure. <laughs> I just wanted to kill the guy. She gives him the opportunity to satisfy her sexual appetite to win his freedom. The art here is probably the worst of this segment when they're having sex because they just look like two very badly drawn people on top of each other. Like, the, all the exploring and the adventuring and fighting stuff is good, but this it feels like they really cheaped out on the scene of this segment. He seems to succeed in pleasing her, but they're interrupted by guards who announce that Norrell has stolen the Lochnar. Den leaps from a balcony and rides a beast out of town back to the temple where the sacrifice was happening. Ard is already mid-ceremony, preparing again to sacrifice Catherine Wells. The queen, still butt naked, rides a swarm of dragonflies to reclaim her Lochnar. Den runs up disguised in a cloak and rescues Catherine from the ceremony a second time. Ard and the Queen fight over the Lochnar with grade school dialogue. I was going to say, this; these are my favorite line reads <laughs> yeah. in this entire movie. The Lochnar is mine! Stupid bitch, get away Give from me! Give it to the me. The Lochnar's mine. It's mine. It's mine. Don't you say it. It's mine. I don't know what a Lochnar is. It's my Lochnar. <laughs> Ridiculous. What I thought was a lava pool at the start is now a roiling soup of green sludge. Ard and the Queen's henchmen battle each other, and Den attaches a chain to a harpoon. He kicks one end of the chain into the water and hurls the blade at a wall near the Lochnar to recreate the conditions of the experiment that brought him here. When lightning strikes, Ard and the Queen are caught in the energy burst and vanish, presumably back to Dan's bedroom. Where did they go? They're gone. That's all that matters. They probably went back to Earth. Boy, will Mom be surprised. I want to see that movie. Yeah. <laughs> it just starts like that. Wait. It's called Big. Uh, so your kid disappears in the night. It's replaced by an, um, an adult man. But when they show back up there, he's a kid and she's 81. Right. Catherine tells Den that he could rule this world or return home using the Lochnar, but he'd rather fly into the sunset with her on his trusty dragonfly steed. On Earth, I'm nobody. But here, I'm Den. Uh, apparently the original comics were... Now, I, I've seen the original comics. I wasn't a big reader of them, but I'm aware of them. Yeah. But apparently the original comics weren't quite as overtly comedic yeah. as this segment. Yeah, this one definitely feels like they wanted it to be a like a preteen fantasy type story. It probably made it more bearable by trying yeah. to make it funny. Yeah. Had they played it straight, it might have been too Uncomfortable. much. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Back to the Grimaldi residence, and the voice of Lochnar transitions to the next story, Captain Stern. The Lochnar shrinks to the size of a jawbreaker and magically floats through the improbably open window of a spaceship where it is found by an impending witness named Hanover Fist. We cut from here to a trial in session where the prosecuting attorney reads off a laundry list of crimes attributed allegedly to Captain Stern. Lincoln Stern, you stand here accused of 12 counts of murder in the first degree. 14 counts of armed theft of Federation property. 22 counts of piracy in high space. 18 counts of fraud. 37 counts of rape. And one moving violation. Stern's attorney has a panic attack when he pleads not guilty, but Stern reassures him repeatedly that he has an angle. 
This is my second favorite line read in, in the entire film. It's good. I've got an angle. I told you, Charlie, I got an angle. But the most we can hope for is to get you buried in secrecy so your grave don't get violated. <laughs> Hanover Fist is called to the stand. He begins his testimony just as Stern admits Hanover is his angle. I promised him 35,000 Zulex to testify on my behalf. I wonder how many Zulex there are in one chrono dollar. <laughs> the prosecuting attorney asks a series of questions and Hanover seems to respond with complimentary points, but he's also hypnotized by the Lochnar, seemingly hypnotized by the Lochnar, and starts spouting off terrible details. He's never done anything immoral. See? Unless maybe the preschooler's prostitute ring. Huh? And he's uh, never done anything illegal. Uh, Unless you count all the times he sold dope disguised as a nun. The voice work here is, is beautiful. It's really great. But I feel like these jokes played out of order because the crimes should be escalating. And yeah. selling drugs to people dressed as a nun is not anywhere near as bad as child prostitution. Stern is speechless and Hanover slowly transforms at the stand into a huge hulkish monster. Eventually, he chases Stern from the courtroom, threatening to punish the defendant himself. Stern, aided by a small flying eyeball with arms, runs for his life through the ship until Hanover has him trapped against a wall alone, at which point they let down the act and Stern pays Hanover the Zulex he promised, and we realize that the Lochnar didn't actually do anything to Hanover. This was going to be my point. Yeah. There, there, this makes no sense in the context of the framing yeah, uh, story. Because I feel like each of the writers was given the prompt, there's an evil green orb that enters your story and exits your story. And in this one, the orb doesn't actually do anything. We're, it's there so that we think it's causing him to transform and that Stern doesn't realize. So I, I was going to ask, though, because I, I, I know that that was your perspective of this. But like when I was first watching it, I was thinking that he was paying him to calm down the monster that the orb did transform. It's like, oh, yeah, here's the money, you know, like, here you go. It, it, now don't kill me. Well, um, maybe, but I, I did feel like it was it was literally the, the plan from the beginning was you're going to destroy the courtroom and everything, and I'm going to run away, and that's how I'm going to escape this situation that I got myself into. Now, I brought here an actual copy of Heavy Metal that contains the original Captain Stern story. Oh, okay, cool. And the story is that Stern has paid him to disrupt the court proceedings. Stern knew he was going to churn into that hulking monster. Okay. And okay. at the end of the story, he gets paid off. Right. So uh, it, he wasn't so paying him to lie on his behalf. No, that that's... That's what we're supposed to think is going on. Yeah. Okay, so the... So the, that really just does confirm that the orb is pointless in this story. Just in this one. But but for the storytelling purposes, it, it gives us a reason to suspect that he's transforming as a result of yeah. a catalyst that Stern was not expecting. Yeah, it's, it's a red herring because yeah. Stern acts surprised when he changes. And that's the same in the comic, too. Yeah. But that's just him selling it. Yeah. Okay, Hanover. You've had this coming. Let's see. 33, 34, 35,000 Zulex. Thanks, Hanover. It's nothing, boss. As Hanover counts his pace, Stern slaps a button on a trap door, 
which drops Hanover into space, and we see Hanover's hand rocketing through a planet's atmosphere, holding the Lochnar tight. Not in the comic, by the way. It oh, did, that's not the ending. No, it just no. ends with Hanover getting paid off. Yeah, I think that was probably just to transition to what is actually a missing segment yes. here, which would have been titled Neverwhere Land, uh, which is actually the name of the planet from the Den segment. That's that's correct. Um, but uh, it would have seen Hanover's hand land on the surface of a planet, and then the Lochnar would sort of seed life and influence the evolution of a society, leading them to war against each other which ends with the start of the next segment, which is the B-17, mm. the plane's already at war. That that makes more sense, because I yeah. thought that the transition between these two was... Was a little weak. Yeah, yeah. like they, yeah. they're not really connected. From that making of short that I watched, everyone who worked on the film at the time was like, the Neverwhere Land segment, we don't have time to finish it. It, it slows the movie down, we gotta cut it out. Yeah. But they all say later, we should have left that in. It was beautiful. There was yeah. no... We, we sh- it was a huge mistake to cut that out. And it also, uh, I guess the, the edited animatic that they had was cut to Pink Floyd, which was taken out of the movie as a result, which might have meant that it wouldn't come out in 96 because it would have taken longer to figure out the rights to have uh, Pink Floyd in there. It's already like litigious music right, to coordinate. Right. It's disappointing, though, because premise-wise, this that actually sounds better than some of these other segments to but me. it's also sounds compared to the other stories very ambitious well, to show the yeah. rise and collapse of a society and no apparent like speaking characters mm-hmm. i right. think yeah. it, was, it was just all very conceptual versus an actual plot driven yeah uh, right. storyline uh but b17 starts and it's a group of planes flying through the night sky as anti-aircraft rounds are exploding all around them the men inside fire on enemy planes and are fired upon. Very quickly, the plane is down to just a pilot and co-pilot with a lot of dead gunners. Pilot Skip orders co-pilot Nelson to survey the damage, and he verifies that all souls aboard are lost. And when he walks into the back, it's a beautiful effect because all you hear is the whistling wind from the openings in the fuselage. Right, yeah. And it's very creepy. Yeah, I, I really like the the general mood of this whole segment. And going back to that making of short, apparently the one of the animators on the segment had actually fought in World War II. Oh, really? And he just loved doing this segment featuring a warplane from that period. Well, it's definitely from what I have listened to, it seems to be a favorite for a lot of people. I, I think my, my favorite is probably Harry Canyon from this batch. I guess we can do this at the end. but no, Okay. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I really did like this one. Skip calls to co-pilot Nelson for updates as he continues counting the bodies. Just as he locates the last of the corpses, he notices a green ball glowing in the air behind their plane. He's worried that there's some kind of meteorite following them through the sky. He shouts to warn Skip, but it's too late to avoid it and the Loch Nar collides with their plane. Suddenly, all the corpses on board are glowing green the same shade as the Loch Nar. As Nelson makes his way back to the cockpit, he encounters the resurrected, zombified corpses of his flight crew. Nelson is cornered in a gunner bubble under the plane, and we see him viciously mauled through its windows. This is like the darkest moment, I think, in the whole thing, where the zombie's just eating the guy against the window. (laughs) Once again, from that making of short, they talked about how the animators delighted in being able to draw stuff like gruesome murders and naked people. Because this stuff doesn't get put out there. Yeah, they're so used to having to work on child-friendly animation that they get to this cut loose and do all this wild stuff in this movie no watering down necessary here make it as extreme as possible (laughs) 
When Skip finally moves to investigate all the strange noises, he finds the living skeletons of his crew. He fires on them briefly before leaping from the plane and parachuting to a desert island below. Which I was like, finally, somebody does what I want them to do here. <laughs> get out of this plane. Get away from these people. But unfortunately for him, his plane wrecks on the same island as he explores it. And he finds dozens of identical planes all crashed in the same place. He's quickly surrounded and presumably consumed by the undead passengers of all these downed planes, and the camera zooms out of the massacre. Uh, one plane in particular caught my eye. Oh, yeah? A Lockheed Electra, which would imply that Amelia Earhart is one of these zombies. Oh, my God, that's awesome. <laughs> I did not catch that. The camera zooms out of the massacre, and the picture changes from the regular animation to a computer wireframe of the scene. It becomes clear that we're watching this on a monitor on board a spaceship, and then the channel changes to an overhead shot of the Pentagon. And now we are in the second-to-last story, which is entitled, So Beautiful and So Dangerous. An expert pushes through a crowd of angry reporters on his way to give a presentation at the Pentagon. They ask about various mutations and the Jupiter-6 program. In a private meeting inside the Pentagon, a senator claims his constituents are being mutated by alien spacecrafts. A general tries to shut down the argument in the absence of proof, and expert Dr. Anrak is invited to speak and assures the crowd there is no cause for alarm. While we listen to this man claim that humans are alone in the universe as an intelligent species, a shadow passes over the city and stops right above the Pentagon. In a wider shot, we see a spherical spaceship that looks like a smiling Kirby model hovering right above the building. A woman transcribing notes from the meeting is wearing a necklace, and we can see a glowing green orb in the jewelry. The crowd are weirdly quick to believe Dr. Anrak that there are no aliens. When he tries to continue speaking, he suddenly suffers some sort of malfunction, and it's clear that he's a robot or something. We're hearing, like, digital sounds as he tries to talk. He seems to focus on the little green Lochnar yes. necklace that seems to set it off. Yeah, I think that the implication is that there's some kind of radiation that is affecting his computing, right. that he can't talk when he's near it. Because they keep referring also to the green radiation that's mutating everybody. So right. the Lochnar is doing stuff off screen as well. Yep. And then he loses it and just tackles the woman in the middle of the conference. At the same time, a straw lowers from the spaceship to the roof of the Pentagon and then saws its way through, dropping into the room like the Pentagon was a giant Tropicana orange. <laughs> in their efforts to suck Dr. Anrak into the spaceship, they accidentally collect the secretary as well. Dr. Anrak is broken into many pieces by the violent suction of the straw, and a robot voiced by John Candy again is angry at his incompetent co-workers who have the settings on too high. How am I gonna fix this guy? He's fucked! Just we turned it up a little too high. Sorry, man. You're sorry? What about me? I gotta put this asshole back together. The John Candy bot seems to be attracted to the woman instantly and makes up an excuse that they can't just return her to Earth. I demand you return me to my office immediately. Um, uh, too late. Molecular, uh, molecular instability zone around the spacecraft. You cannot leave. What? <laughs> Wingman alien characters voiced by Harold Ramis and Eugene Levy corroborate the John Candy bot's story that she'll just have to stay on board for now. There's no way to let you go. Candybot leads her to, and, and that's not what he's called, but I think <laughs> that's, what, that's what he should be called. Yeah. Candybot leads her to a bedroom to fetch her a drink, which is not where you typically get drinks for people, but whatever. These are aliens. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, typical robot. The first Earth chick we see in 10 years, and he's got to make a play for. The alien co-pilots decide to split a bag of Plutonian Nyborg, 
their last bag, but it's probably a 20-pound bag, so <laughs> I, I think they should be okay. Uh, they use a robot to spread foot-wide lines of alien coke all over their spaceship. You think this is enough? Uh, nah, go for bro. Good thinking, man. Do you guys recall the last time we saw space coke in a movie? I've asked you this before. You both forgot it twice now. <laughs> Galaxina? No. Damn it. It was on Earth. Oh, this oh, This hint oh. didn't help last time. Is it, um, it was the Cheech and Chong's next movie? Yeah. And they give us some space coke, man. Look at, this is space coke. You never tasted this before, man. Do you guys recall the last time we heard Harold Ramis stoned? I'm going to say stripes. Yeah, when he took all the acid <laughs> before they flew to uh, Columbia. Oh, yeah, that's the extended stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, <laughs> not great. Yeah, not great stuff. I can, <laughs> it definitely should have been cut. Next, the movie just chills out for a bit while these two aliens fly a ship completely stoned out of their minds. We cut back to the ship's bedroom where Candybot and Earth Girl have just consummated their relationship. I've been programmed to be fully proficient in sexual activities. Do you want to go steady? Gee, I don't know. For some reason, Candybot already has his heart set on marrying this girl, and she turns him down several times in a row before relenting. All right, all right, I'll marry you. But on one condition, I want a Jewish wedding. A Jewish wedding? You okay? Um, I forgot. Are you circumcised? The ship closes in on its destination, which looks like an entire city as a docking bay. We can see a McDonald's on the face of it. Misspelled. Yeah, McDonald's. <laughs> I did want to mention during the flight, when they're flying past a bunch of junk spaceships, Yeah, one of them is the Enterprise. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. I saw that. Yeah. For just like a couple frames it yes. floats by. Yeah. And also the controls for the spaceship that the aliens are flying. Yeah. There's like a little instruction panel on their control panel that yeah. says, you know, to go forward, push forward, to go back, pull back. <laughs> it's very basic instructions it's to have a flight spaceship. Yes. <laughs> this is exactly the instruction they needed. <laughs> this is where we hear the title track from the soundtrack, Sammy Hagar's Heavy Metal. The Eugene Levy alien asks the Harold Ramis alien if he's capable of landing the ship, and he says it's no problem. I think you're going a little high, man. It's okay, man. If there's one thing I know, it's how to drive when I'm stoned. It's like you know your perspective's fucked, so you just gotta let your hands work the controls as if you're straight. He does a lot of damage crash landing the ship, but the co-pilot applauds the landing anyway. <laughs> we cut back to the Grimaldi house where the Loch Nahr orb informs the astronaut's mute daughter that the stories are almost finished. Look into me one final time. See my evil destroy your race foreshadowing yeah at the start of our final story a giant Loch Nahr floats above land and settles into a volcano or maybe it's just a mountain to start and it becomes a volcano when it's it sounds like the Loch Nahr yeah from a distance various people observe the volcano which is now glowing green they journey to inspect it up close and just as they reach the base it erupts green lava sludge drenches all the people and they sink out of sight into it we watch one of the men with a metal arm disappear from view but then suddenly his hands re-emerge from the slime discolored he now dons a metal helmet with horns and declares to the other survivors that they will kill all who oppose them they wander to the nearest city armed with spears and guns and spear guns and attack unprovoked the city is quickly overrun and the town's elders convene in a huge domed temple the plan in the event of an attack like this has always been to call for help from the great protector tarak tarak the defender 
His race is dead. They cannot defend anyone. Some say that the race is not dead, that one still lives. It's like, I'm going to need some sources here. Yeah. We, we need to know one of them is around before we just chant a person's name as we get murdered. The last surviving Tarakian is Tarna, for whom this final segment is named. And they put out the signal to summon her because the Elder is certain that one Tarakian is strong enough to defeat this entire army. Unfortunately, she is unlikely to arrive in time to save them. A young boy guards the door against the hordes all by himself. The elders chant her name to summon Tarna to their rescue. For whatever reason, the child manning the gates alone waits until now to lock them. But before he can engage the barricade, the doors swing open and destroy it. He is quickly speared through a dozen times with razor-sharp rods fired from guns and collapses to the floor. It's one of the most brutal shots. It's, oh, it's a great image. Yeah. And then they do this great match cut yeah. where he collapses, staring into frame as he's bleeding out, and then we crossfade to like a vehicle on the edge of town that's Yeah, the, la destroyed. the landscape mimics his body right. with the spears in it, and it's just so great. Yeah. they don't. Re that's really the only transition like that yeah. but it's it's such a cool shot well there's some um, i don't know if it's a little too early to jump into the credits on this but there are a couple noted comic artists who worked on this segment oh okay uh, uh, mike plug and howard chaikin and i imagine it's probably a little bit of their influence there sure that makes sense the camera floats along behind a robed figure riding a pterodactyl bird through the sky it's another roto-heavy segment, and it's either aerial footage that they've converted or miniatures that they've built that they're recording on camera. It, they, it, it was an actual miniature set that they filmed over. Very cool. And uh, the image of Tarna on the bird creature is actually borrowed from a Mobius comic called Azark that they wanted to use in the film. I right. mean, not that, that particular story, but they just love that image. I think... Originally, this was supposed to be the Azark story, oh, so? and okay. it's one of the ones that Mobius had given to uh, Matal Herlan uh, series that someone else was making, oh, okay. and so they had to switch the character out. Got it. And that, and uh, the same thing happened with the Can Harry Canyon story, which is another yeah. Mobius story. Yeah, yeah. the Very, long tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like the it, this this whole tarn the whole Tarna story, uh, especially. I was like, oh man, this is definitely like Mobius style yeah. artwork if not mobius themselves yeah exactly they fly through the skeletons of enormous beasts at the edge of town and then through an enormous computer looking building tarna stops at a fountain of her ancestors and of course disrobes to partake in a ritual she swims across a pool to an enormous statue holding a sword a compartment in the floor opens and she retrieves a traditional vengeance uniform <laughs> she dresses slowly just yeah. slowly enough for the target audience of this film. Yeah. <laughs> and she somehow becomes almost more naked by yeah. putting on these clothes, <laughs> by putting yeah. on all this clothing. It's, Some, it's, it's like if you're naked with socks on, it's just like, I feel more naked with the socks on. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I should put these socks on my feet. <laughs> what? <laughs> she can hear the voice of her ancestor, Tarak. To defend, this is the pact. But when life loses its value and is taken for naught, then the pact is to Paraphrasing Iron Man's line from the first Avengers film. Because if we can't protect the Earth, you can be damn well sure we'll avenge it. Tarna plucks a golden sword from the floor and raises it in the air where it is struck by lightning, presumably imbuing her with some power that we don't see later. She flies to the Dome of the Elders and finds only corpses. 
One of them is holding a medallion with a Z, possibly to point her in the direction of the responsible culprits, though I believe the astronaut Grimaldi from the start of the film wore a similar medallion on his spacesuit. I don't know if that means he's a bad guy or what. Well, it's more foreshadowing that he's part of the same area, same, you know, planet because of what ends up happening at the end of the film right she finds a rowdy bar with similar medallions on trained bats outside she walks in and orders a drink without speaking she's approached by a group of brutes and when they get grabby with her she busts one of their noses causing a gush of green blood may i note that in the bar uh the song, the music playing is Devo. Right, and there's they're the band, right? They're the band, and in fact, one of the faces on one of the band members is animated to look like a character called Boogie Boy, spelled Boogie Boy, but yeah. they pronounce it Boogie Boy, which is one of the characters that would appear in uh, Devo videos and oh, sometimes that's awesome. on stage and stuff, so it kind of looks like him. That's great. When they continue harassing her, she swings the sword and slices all three of their heads off. She presents the medallion to the bartender who points her in the direction of the glowing green mountain. As she flies there, she is caught in a net, even though she should be able to kill an army (laughs) single-handedly. She's identified by a neck tattoo as a Terrakian. Their metal-armed leader orders her washed and bound and her bird killed. He's surprised how easy it was to catch her, and so am I. He whips the shit out of her and then tosses her into a pit. As his henchmen attempt to kill her bird, it dodges an arrow and then flies down to retrieve her. The baddies give chase on their giant bats, and fire darts into her bird's neck. When it crash lands, she yanks the spike out and waits for it to die because she didn't wear enough clothes to fashion a tourniquet. (laughs) (laughs) The leader of the villains puts his metal hand in saw blade mode, and it sort of resembles Judge Doom's spinning blade arm from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Tarna collects the sword, and they duel for a while. He tears sizable gashes in her arm and torso, but she keeps fighting. He snatches her sword away and almost kills her, but the warrior barbarian woman courageously is rescued again by her bird, who bites the bad guy's leg. He slices at the bird and then returns to fight Tarna, but she drives his own saw blade into his neck and his entire army stands shocked. She climbs her dying bird again, requiring a third rescue in ten minutes. Together, they soar over the volcano and she raises the sword to collect more lightning energy before diving inside to destroy the Lochnar. We cut back to the Grimaldi house and it's clear that Tarna has entered the orb telling the stories and the astronaut's daughter runs from the house just before it explodes in green light. This was intended as another roto shot, but because of the adjusted release date, they ran out of time and so they just left footage of a model house exploding, which I think works fine. It, yeah, yeah, it looks it <laughs> looks weird enough to be yeah. effective. At least they lit it in green, you know? It would be weirder if it was just like a regular model house exploding in white light, but uh, it, looks, it looks fine. From a distance, we see smoke rising from the remains of her house as the girl wakes up in a field and another pterodactyl bird lands near her. She jumps on its back and we get some voiceover. And the spirit of time is transferred across the universe to a new defender. And the power of evil is contained for another generation. And a new Terrakian is born to protect the next. Credits roll over still frames from each of the corresponding segments. A couple more things about Tarna. Uh, her costume could have been worse. Yeah. <laughs> there were sh- production shots in that making of video 
where she isn't even really wearing a top. It's just straps between her breasts. Oh, really? Yeah, it, it could have been much worse. And that was their plan originally to it, illustrate it that way? Yeah, that was one of the yeah. samples that they had. <laughs> uh, another thing is I really like that she never talks. Yeah. That's very interesting that 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 she never has anything to say. She just lets her action speak for I, I feel like the only time it actually stands out is when she goes to order the drinks, but she just like holds up two fingers or something like that, and then they get her what the, she ordered. The universal symbol for ordering a drink. Right. Yeah. Going through the stories in order, um, just a couple extra notes for Harry Canyon. We kind of talked about this already, but it's based on Mobius' story, The Long Tomorrow, uh, which he drew while working with Jodorowsky on his ill-fated Dune adaptation. The designs went on to inspire films like Blade Runner, Tron, Alien, The Abyss, and perhaps most blatantly Luke Besson's The Fifth Element, because Besson has never been shy about borrowing things. Well, Mobius actually worked on that film. Right. He yeah. was. In, he was. He has an art design credit right. on it. But it seems like he was borrowing from himself here a little bit too. I remember watching that film for the first time and thinking, this entire film looks like it was designed by Mobius. Yeah. And I watched the credits and I go, well, oh, yeah, there was. he is. Of course. <laughs> the Tarna piece, as we mentioned, is based on Mobius's Arzak, which has a male in the lead uh, in the comic version of it, who probably lost fewer fights and clothing than Tarna does in uh, <laughs> this segment. Um, getting into the credits now, um, the director, there, there was like, an overall director of the entire project and then individual directors for each segment. But the overall director was Gerald Potterton, who had directed Buster Keaton in The Rail Rotter and worked in the animation department of Yellow Submarine. But a lot of these people don't have many credits that I recognize, either because they worked for small-scale animation companies in Canada and just were people who were available at the time. So unfortunately for the directing side, I really don't have a lot to go on uh director john bruno did the soft landing segment that's the the spacex car landing from space he was a regular vfx guy for james cameron on t2 abyss titanic avatar etc he also directed a documentary called deep sea challenge which i actually have a credit on because of my time at stereo d post converting films for 3d but it was a documentary following james cameron to the mariana trench and uh, the deepest point in the atlantic ocean that humans have been to um and so it's just about the the complications of getting there um director john hallis directed the so beautiful and so dangerous segment that's the the aliens doing coke uh and kidnapping the secretary uh he has lots of short animation directing credits but nothing i recognized outside of this director julian harris did captain stern he was a director on 10 episodes of a canadian animated series called bob and margaret that i really loved oh they, yeah bob and margaret they used to play repeats of it on comedy central i think back in the day it's just really pleasant show about this older married couple and their adventures and it was just fun Director Jimmy T. Murakami, um, last season he was the director of Battle Beyond the Stars and all the rape scenes from Humanoids from the Deep. <laughs> uh, director Barry Nelson directed the B-17 segment, not much else I recognized, and he is not to be confused with Barry Jimmy Bond Nelson, who we last saw as Mr. Ullman in The Shining. Director Paul Sabella directed the Captain Stern segment. He's lately directed a lot of Bob the Builder episodes, <laughs> um, but that fits with Captain Stern, I feel like. Not really at all. Director Jack Stokes, not much else I recognized. Uh, he did the Den segment. Director Pino Van Lamsweird directed Harry Canyon. Not much else I recognized, but I really like that segment. Yeah, the animation or the 
actual texture of the backgrounds right. in that is just beautiful. Yeah, it, the, it, the it detail. Astounding. It feels like that's maybe the first one that they started because they got the furthest along in the animation. Right, right. And the rest of them feel a little bit rushed. But that one in particular, when it first started, I was like, this animation looks really crummy. And I meant it in a good way because it looks like our crumb did it. Like right, right. All, the, all the little <laughs> hash lines on mm-hmm. the edges of the characters and everything. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I really liked the look of that one. And, and I could have gone for that one being longer even. But uh, and, and the story, I think, worked really well for that one. Uh, Harold Whitaker directed the Grimaldi segment. Not much else I recognized. Writers now, uh, Daniel Goldberg has a screenplay credit and also story credits for the Harry Canyon and Tarna segments. He has screenwriting credits on Meatballs, Stripes, and Space Hunters, Adventures in the Forbidden Zone, which we'll get to later. Uh, writer Len Blum also has a screenplay credit and story credits for Harry Canyon and Tarna. He also wrote Meatballs, Stripes, Space Hunters, and Beethoven's Second Private Parts. Uh, not Beethoven's Second Private Parts. That's a weird movie. <laughs> yeah. But those are two movies, Beethoven's Second Private Parts and the first Steve Martin Pink Panther. Uh, story credit for Soft Landing goes to Dan O'Bannon, um, and he also has a story credit on B-17. He obviously wrote Alien, Dark Star. Uh, we had a character named Dan O'Bannon in the fog last year. Yeah. Uh, he also wrote Dead and Buried later this season, as well as Life Force, Invaders from Mars for Toby Hooper, Total Recall, and he also wrote and directed Return of the Living Dead, which you have seen, we haven't seen, but that's one, your oh, favorite yeah. zombie movie, right? Yeah, it's it's really the only zombie movie I'll watch. Yeah. Because it's a comedy zombie movie. It's yeah. a comedy, yeah. The Tar Man is one of the most haunting yeah, I've, but amazing I've, effects but 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 my also my affection for that movie also comes that was the one of my first monster visions with joe bob briggs oh sure that makes sense i actually saw that in the theater oh wow nice yeah it was very nice uh story credit for richard corbin for the den segment he was a writer for this and metal herlon chronicles which was a series adapted from the original french magazine a story credit for bernie wrightson for captain stern um he also worked on the art department for the 2007 the mist and ghostbusters and he created Swamp Thing is probably his claim to fame. Yep. Uh, so 90% of his IMDb page is just various iterations of Swamp Thing. Uh, story for Angus McKee on So Beautiful and So Dangerous. He doesn't have much outside of this, and I don't. I feel like even inside of this. He's, <laughs> he's done a lot of, like, illustrations for, like, science fiction books. Oh, okay. And... and uh, he's been around he's done a lot yeah. of comic work he's, it seems like a talented artist but nice. in terms of the writing there's really not a lot to the so beautiful and so dangerous story it, it's, it's my favorite one is it your favorite yeah that's good <laughs> it's adapted i think from a much longer story i think they just took segments from a longer story oh, okay. and used it in this just to focus on the stuff that seemed the most transgressive for sure the, for the heavy metal movie yeah you got you got to sell what the people are there for yes uh character credit for jean mobius gerard uh he has art department credits on willow the abyss fifth element tron alien space jam masters of the universe lots of great stuff uh the music here was from elmer bernstein outside of obviously the soundtrack stuff uh elmer bernstein scored animal house the series delta house uh he also scored meatballs the great santini saturn 3 airplane going ape American Werewolf in London, Stripes, and perhaps most famously Ghostbusters. At least that's the first one I think of from him. Uh, and his score for the Tarna sequence here was actually recycled from material that he wrote for Farrah Fawcett's theme in Saturn Three. Okay. But they didn't end up using his music for that film, so he used it again here. Uh, Don Franks 
getting into the cast now, Don Franks was the voice of Grimaldi, the the astronaut who's coming home to his daughter. Um, he was also a co-pilot in B-17, um, which I think it's, by calling him co-pilot and not pilot, I think that means that he's Skip that was exploring the full ship. Um, and then he played a barbarian in the Tarna segment. We saw him most recently as Chief Newbie in My Bloody Valentine. Uh, he was also Hookie in Johnny Mnemonic. And he's back in 83 as Muck or Mock in Rock and Rule, which is a very similar rock-themed animated film with a lot of crazy visuals and stuff like that. Um, we also mentioned in our My Bloody Valentine review that Franks is the father of voice actress Cree Summer, Tiny Toons' Elmira Duff. Richard Romanus played Harry Canyon. He was Michael in Mean Streets. He's Weehawk in Bakshi's Wizards, which is another movie that fits into this sort of genre. Uh, he and his brother Robert Romanus appeared together as brothers in Season 1, Episode 9, The Prodigal of MacGyver. Richard here even returned for another MacGyver episode called Twice Stung. Susan Roman played Girl in the Harry Canyon segment. That's the one who just, they refused to name. Uh, <laughs> she's also credited as Satellite in the Harry Canyon segment. She voices Amelia Vaught and Scarlet Witch in the X-Men animated series from the 90s. She's also Lita and Sailor Jupiter on Sailor Moon. Al Waxman was Rudnick in the Harry Canyon segment. He's also Alfie in Atlantic City. I think that's the shitty boyfriend who cheats on, uh, cheats on the girl with her sister and, um, and then ends up dying. Spoiler alert. Harvey Atkin played an alien in the Harry Canyon segment and a henchman. We've seen him as a bus driver in Atlantic City. So I guess I was wrong. That wasn't uh, John Candy holding his nose. He was, mm. he was, he was the alien voice. Uh, we've seen him as a bus driver in Atlantic City and in improper channels recently. He also voiced King Koopa on both Mario Bros. animated series and Mr. Rock Chewer in the NeverEnding Story animated series, which I didn't even know existed. But I would like to look into that now. John Candy played the desk sergeant in Harry Canyon. He was Dan and Den in Den. He was the robot in, uh, he, he was the candy bot in <laughs> So Beautiful and So Dangerous. I guess if he's just credited as a robot, I don't feel bad about calling it the candy bot. Uh, we've seen him so far in Blues Brothers and Stripes. Later he shows up in Home Alone, Uncle Buck, Summer Rental, Rescuers Down Under, Cool Runnings, and finally Canadian Bacon before passing away at just 43. Jackie Burroughs played Catherine in the Den segment. She was previously credited as woman agent in the kidnapping of the president last season. I think that was the woman carrying a live baby as a distraction to arrest a terrorist wearing a bomb. <laughs> and we were very disturbed by that strategy. Martin Lavitt played Ard in the Den segment. He has mostly directing credits, not much I recognized, but he also shows up as Mylar in 1983's Rock and Rule. Uh, August Schellenberg played Norrell. He was in the Den segment, and he's also Tarak, the voiceover of the ancestors in the Tarna sequence. And he played Powhatan in Terrence Malick's New World. He also showed up earlier this season as Deke de Blerg in Death Hunt, where they're trying to chase down Charlie Bronson in the snow. John Vernon was the prosecutor who reads all the crimes that uh, Captain Stern has committed. Uh, we saw him as the mayor in Dirty Harry for our Patreon review. He also worked for The Lampoon previously as Dean Vernon Wormer in Animal House. We saw him previously in a regular episode as the villain of last season's Herbie Goes Bananas, but we've discussed his work on MacGyver for season one, episode four, The Gauntlet. So it's fun that uh, we have a couple of MacGyver yeah. people coming back for this one. He also voices Thunderbolt Ross for the 90s Hulk animated series. 
Uh, Eugene Levy was stern, which he doesn't sound like Eugene Levy to me at all. I mean, I know this is early in his career, but... Um, but he's... it's so great. Yeah. I love that voice work on, yeah. on Stern. And obviously, I feel like this character definitely was an inspiration for Zap Brannigan oh, in yeah. terms of just the bravado and the how he's going to get away with everything. Um, he also, uh, Levy also voiced the male reporter in the So Beautiful, So Dangerous segment. It's one of the people uh, shouting on the way into into the Pentagon. And he's also the voice of Edsel, which is one of the two alien co-pilots of the same segment. He's obviously an SCTV regular. If you blink, you'll miss his cameo in Nothing Personal from our first season. And he's known best to my generation as the dad from American Pie, but he's also great in Multiplicity and the recently ended Schitt's Creek series. Joe Flaherty was a lawyer in the Captain Stern segment. He's the one who says, we've got to get you buried in secret. He was also a general in So Beautiful and So Dangerous. He's another SCTV regular. We just had him in Stripes as one of the Czechoslovakian border guards. He was also the dad on Freaks and Geeks, and he's Abe Lincoln's dad on Clone High. Unfortunately, <laughs> he's probably best known for his catchphrase, Jackass, from Happy Gilmore. He's also the Western Union man in Back to the Future right. 2, which is his other Jaws sequel joke character. <laughs> Roger Bumpus played Hanover Fist in the Captain Stern segment. He was also Dr. Anrak in the So Beautiful and So Dangerous segment. Uh, we just had him in his first role as one of the dancers on stage in Escape from New York when they're performing the musical for everybody's amusement. Where Ernest Borgnine is just smiling and dancing through the whole show until he joins up with Snake. Uh, he also voiced Lewis Tully on the real Ghostbusters animated series, but he is likely best known for voicing Squidward Tentacles in 257 episodes of SpongeBob SquarePants. Douglas Kenny was a Regolian in the Captain Stern segment. I tried to figure out who the Regolian is. I have no idea. Uh, I do not know unless it's one of the alien onlookers who's shouting something at, or at... or maybe it's a it's the judge possibly i'm not sure somebody else in that in that segment maybe it is just somebody shouting from the crowd yeah it could be um but he's the national lampoon co-founder and the writer of animal house and caddyshack whose untimely death recently troubled chevy chase during the making of under the rainbow he is portrayed by will forte and martin mull in netflix's national lampoon biopic a futile and stupid gesture which is wonderful and yeah, i recommend it, it to everyone and a little bit of a spoiler i think isn't it what about the martin mull playing him or? oh i guess that is a spoiler Either way, I feel like it's it's a weird spoiler because you're like, that doesn't make sense. And you have to watch the movie to understand. Right, why. right, right. George Tulliatos plays a pilot in the B-17 segment and a barbarian in the Tarna segment. He was Colonel Rankin in our minisode Virus Review from Kinji Fukasaku's Virus. And he was Lieutenant McBride in Prom Night. Zal Yanofsky was the navigator in the B-17 segment and a barbarian in the Tarna segment. He's a member of the Love and Spoonful who played himself in their reunion concert from One Trick Pony last season. Patty Friedman played woman reporter in So Beautiful, So Dangerous. She shows up later at Lewis Tully's client party in Reitman's Ghostbusters. She's the nerdier looking girl with the big like, wire rim glasses that's mm. like hiding in the corner for the party. Uh, Warren Munson played the senator who's upset about his constituents growing extra arms and green skin. He played Admiral Robinson in Jason Takes Manhattan. Harold Ramis was Zeke. That's the alien co-pilot from So Beautiful and So Dangerous. We've discussed his work so far directing Caddyshack and starring in Stripes. Later, he's Egon in Ghostbusters. He directs his fair share of comedies, including National Lampoon's Vacation two years later, which stars his shipmates from this film, John Candy and Eugene Levy. He also directs Groundhog Day and Multiplicity, uh, Multiplicity, which also stars Eugene Levy. 
I love his character in that. He's just like this shitty contractor who can't keep anything straight and screws up all the time. He's really funny. Vlastra Vrana played barbarian leader. That's the perfect name for a barbarian leader. <laughs> Vlastra Vrana. We've seen him this season as a bartender in Happy Birthday to Me and Baron Stuyvesant, one of Sterling Hayden's boys in Gas. Maver Moore played an elder in the Tarna segment. I guess the elder, the one who says, we're going to call for help. We're not going to do anything else about this. He was Trevelyan in Scanners earlier this season. Len Doncheff played a barbarian in the Tarna segment. He's the voice of Omega Red on the X-Men animated series. And then right behind him, Cedric Smith, who played the bartender in the Tarna segment, is the voice of Professor X from the X-Men show. So that's cool that he was in here. Uh, Percy Rodriguez played Lochnar. Uh, that's an uncredited voice. For some reason, he doesn't get a credit in the film, but he does the voice that's telling the stories. And we last heard his voice as the Darth Vader-esque Mordric from Ordric in last season's Galaxina. He's also back right away a couple episodes from now in Deadly Blessing, and he's the narrator of Captain EO. So that's cool. What uh, was your favorite segment? Oh, uh, there was another cast member. Oh, was there? You, Somebody missed, I missed? Uh, yeah. Uh, Alice Platon. Okay. Um, uh, sorry, I'm going to bring her up real quick because I... Uh, Alice Playton, I I know uh, she plays Gloria in this, but I know her mostly as the character of Blix from Legend. Oh, okay. Uh, who's uh, Darkness's uh, lead uh, lead goblin that he sends out? Yeah, I feel like rhymes. I neglect Legend too often when I'm going through credits because okay. I don't know that movie as well. But uh, but uh, yeah, so sorry, I'm just bringing up her other credits. Um, she was also the voice of BB Bluff on Doug. Oh the, yes, the mayor's daughter. Yeah, uh, vote for me. Uh, sorry. <laughs> people remember doug i don't know everybody remembers uh, doug uh but yeah i mean um but just her work as blix i think is, is one of my favorite uh performances yeah that's, that's awesome a, that's a memorable character yeah. i know legend and it's a memorable character patrick right. <laughs> i'm not saying it isn't a memorable character i'm saying yeah. i i'm overdue for a rewatch yeah you are you missed another credit what's that Dave Feast. Oh, Dave Feast is one of the the animators credited in this film. He who, was one of the animators. Who you worked with on... Yeah, he was the director uh, on uh, You Who and Friends, <laughs> which... Uh, a show about a bunch of animals that was like... Well, it, it was, was a, a Korean it, show. It was a Korean show that the company that I was working for, Toon Zone, took, like, got the rights to basically rewrite in yeah we, we just reanimated the like the lip sync on the characters and then then he he also wrote like you know like a little beginning and end to the story where uh father time would come in and like do oh, a I little intro and it was played by flavor Flav. yeah <laughs> and he would take them out for like parties in las vegas and stuff all the time oh god yeah, yeah. i don't know it's all sorts of things but yeah i mean dave feast also is the creator of uh cow and, cow chicken. and chicken yeah but yeah he's he's a great guy but and we've is... discussed him on the show for something else too oh because have we uh because uh he directed um susan tyrell because she did a voice on cow and chicken oh, so when we okay. talked about sure. forbidden zone we mentioned that that he'd worked with her yeah but this seems to be like his like his second credit uh, ever so it seems to be early in his career here yeah that's awesome um yeah you you said yours is the so beautiful so dangerous or yeah whatever. that was that was my favorite one and i i think that's just more my style yeah you i know? definitely agree actually <laughs> after you said that i was like that makes perfect of course sense, it so that's is. Your favorite. <laughs> What about you, Richard? What do you think? I mean, I feel like I feel bad for saying Harry Canyon only because it's like I know that that, that was probably. Oh, yeah. No, that's pick. fine. Um, You're not allowed to have the same favorite. Yeah, I know, it's like, pick uh, your own <laughs> shit. Yeah. Um, but I do. I do also have a soft spot for Den. 
Yeah. Um, I cause, just because it's funny how childish it is. Yeah, like the like you 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 pointed out that line of like no no it's it's mine stupid bitch because <laughs> <laughs> it's just like what what happened yeah um it's like they're just gonna leave they're gonna use that take that was the first take and they're yeah, gonna use it <laughs> that's exactly how i felt i was like <laughs> i was just like was like this is the first the first go at it it's like it's fine they were yeah. short they were short on time yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this movie comes out tomorrow take. guys get out of the <laughs> they're booth they're animating it while they're yeah. speaking <laughs> it's a terrible strain on the artist's wrist <laughs> what was your favorite segment my favorite segment would be the captain stern one okay that's that, a good one that uh well i'm a Bernie Wrightson fan, uh, yeah, because of Swamp Thing. Swamp Thing's my favorite comic book character. Oh, okay. So anything Wrightson worked on, I've always paid attention to, and he in fact did more Stern stories. He actually did a five-part Stern Captain Stern comic book oh, in the early nineties, cool. and Stern popped up like in a backup story. In Is he always comic like movie. a murderer? Like, yeah, a I think fugitive? they so- I think they softened him just a tiny bit for the miniseries <laughs> so that you can stand dealing yeah. with them. Um, I, I haven't read it in a while, but I remember really enjoying it. Because I, I do feel like in this segment, you almost are rooting for Hanover for most of it. Because you're just like, yeah, this guy sounds terrible. Go ahead and kill him. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a real Breaking Bad situation where you're rooting for the bad guy yeah. to, to win with Captain Stern. Yeah. But uh, no, I, I really, despite the fact that the Lochnar kind of muddies things up a bit, the and and the new ending where he kills uh, Hanover Fisk because right, it's not yeah. in the comic. Uh, despite that, it's a very solid adaptation, and it, and it keeps the Wrightson style very simplified version of Wrightson style because Wrightson was very heavy on cross hatching and and uh, detail. Yeah, but it still looks like Wrightson. I was gonna say that one actually looks the most different in terms of the artistic style from all of the others because the the, the lines just feel cleaner a little bit in that one. Well, and it, it's, it's totally different in terms of the aesthetic of how people are drawn. Like right. it's just yeah. co- it completely stands out, but it's it's that one is my favorite aesthetically of everything in here. I think that it's just it's it's more interesting in terms of the the animation. Yeah. Well, I'm still sticking with Harry Canyon as my vote because of just the the detail to the background work, the just really well thought out lived in world that i mean this this interpretation of future new york is really fun i like the character and i i like the story that it's just uh you know we have this MacGuffin that we're trying to sell to a guy and then it's it's also kills the guy i feel like we could have done with a little bit more double crossing but maybe it's fine keep it simple because you only have like what eight or ten minutes to tell your story here it really surprises me that Harry Canyon hasn't had more like spin-offs or adaptations. Yeah. Uh, Tarna recently has been getting a uh, comic book series published featuring her character. I feel like that one's the slowest one of the, of the batch. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's the longest. Too, it, it's, so. it's about four hours long. So yeah. it, it takes a while <laughs> to get through, but that was the one that I always kind of like didn't care for. Although I've watched this movie twice in the last a couple of weeks. Yeah. And I find myself appreciating the Tarnas sequence a lot more for its its storytelling and its pacing. What do we think on this uh, thumbs up or thumbs down, guys? I'll give it a thumbs up. Yeah, it's definitely a thumbs up for me. I would say a thumbs up as well. Yeah, same. Four thumbs up for this one. Um, and then do we know where this is going letterboxed, you guys? I do. I have not even started, so take your time. All right. So I have Slow this- down. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> Go for it. Do you think? I have this one at 
42 out of 105 for the year. Probably not as high as, as you guys have it, but um, <laughs> it's, uh, you know, for, for me, it's it's definitely something that I'd be willing to watch again, which is definitely in the category of the movies that are in this area for me, but it's not like, not like my favorite films of the year. Um, it is below Monster Club and above Clash of the Titans. All right. Richard? Uh, I have it at 24. Okay. So pretty, pretty high. Uh, that 24 puts it below Outland, but above The Fox and the Hound. Okay. I actually have it in 30th place, uh, which is just under Cabo Blanco and just above Cattle Annie and Little Britches out of 105, 30th place. Yeah. I, I don't have a letterboxed. <laughs> yeah. But I was trying to think of where I would place this movie. Yeah. And I would say like, like the best movie of all time is of course, Frank Miller's The Spirit. Of course. Of yes. course. That's Everyone agrees. I think so. <laughs> <Never>. <laughs> the, the bottom of the list would have to be, I, I pray Stunt God, rock. I pray God none of you guys worked on this movie. Uh, Aragon. No. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and like the absolute middle of the list, I was trying to think what would be the absolute middle of a list like that. And I was thinking Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Okay. And like equal parts good and bad. Sure. I would put heavy metal like in the, upper part of that list. Okay. I would put it, it's in the top half of movies. I would put it I would put it yes, in the top half of all movies would exist heavy metal. All right, that's yes. fair. I think that's good. <laughs> that goes along with your thumbs up uh, yes. determination. <laughs> um and did you want to plug anything while you're here? Yeah, you can visit my comic book store online at sterlingsilvercomics.com and I have a long-running comic book blog you can visit at progressiveruin.com. And we'll include a link to that on our Twitter post uh, Perfect. when we put and, it out. And for everybody that comes and visits uh, Camarillo frequently, just stop into the, the actual brick-and-mortar shop. That's right. At <laughs> this, in beautiful Midtown Camarillo, yeah. right next to the post office. There you go. I think that's everything for Heavy Metal. If you guys have any thoughts you'd like to share, we are Vintage Video Pod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Letterboxd. Whereas I've said before, you can find each of our full movie rankings for the year. We can also be found at VintageVideoPodcast.com. We also have a Discord. You can join the 24-7 movie chat and share your thoughts on episodes past, present, and future at VintageVideoPodcast.com slash Discord. And if you're listening on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. What's that sound? We got one! That's right. It's a new patron, Joe Bear. As a $5 patron of the show, she now has access to 29 full-size 70s reviews and 34 minisodes from 1980. Thanks so much, Joe Bear, for making the show possible. You can keep the five bucks I've had. I will, mister! Thank you so much for listening. And I hope you'll join us next time when we'll be discussing Student Bodies, which IMDb describes like so. A serial killer with a signature heavy breathing proceeds to systematically kill the students and teachers of Lamab High School. Lamab. L-A-M-A-B. High School. Is that like a joke? No, that's just what it's called. Okay. It's a choice. <laughs> because they're lambs to the slaughter? Lamabs to the slaughter. Lamb? lamb? Uh, I don't know. I think it's supposed to be like a comedy horror film. I've never actually seen it, but I will soon. And so will you, listener. Maybe. I don't know. Watch it. Yeah, watch it before we talk about it. (laughs) Or don't if it's bad. I don't know yet. Bye. Hello. It's me, the heavy breather from every horror film you've ever seen. You know me. First I terrorize my victim by the telephone. 
can I choose my murder weapon? A gun? Nah, too easy. Uh, a hatchet? Nah, I always use a hatchet. For this movie, I want something very frightening and deadly. Ah. Then I climb the stairs to surprise my victims. Why do they always live upstairs? This movie's a comedy, so killing's not so easy. Sugarless. The movie's called Student Bodies, so I picked the typical American high school. This is Mr. Peters, your principal. Mr. Peters! You're naked! Yes, Toby. All these years I've been secretly naked underneath my clothes. Meet the rest of the faculty. The shop teacher, the guidance counselor, the janitor with the IQ of a handball. What's he doing? Sex education teacher. This is totally unnecessary, ugly, and gets in the way. Everybody's into sex. Last night he gave me a hickey right here. And your mother? She also told me that sex was bad and dirty. Uh, but only with my father. With everyone else, she said it was great. <laughs> I'm into murder myself, and student bodies are going to be everywhere. <laughs> Dead bodies downfield. 15 yard penalty. <laughs> A killer comedy. Two blokes who have never been to America, let alone whatever state Springfield is in, but think they know all about it. Exploring the cultural references in The Simpsons through the prism of Northern England. Expect laughing at 20-odd-year-old jokes and niche references as we try to find everything we learned from The Simpsons. I learned about brunch. It's not quite breakfast. It's not quite lunch. But it comes with a slice of cantaloupe at the end. You don't get completely what you would at breakfast, but you get a good meal. I learned all about the World's Fair in Knoxville, Tennessee, and I can't wait to go see the Sun Sphere. Everything we learned from The Simpsons... Once a fortnight, wherever you get your podcasts. I get my podcast from Costingtons.